Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment, no matter what kind of technical difficulties we're having on a Monday, and, John. And we're usually pretty good about that, oh, but yeah, these were usually, real technical difficulties. We had I'm still today. not quite good yet. That's okay. I have so many thoughts. It's fine. We are going to talk about a lot. We've got a lot to catch up on because we had a we had a cool long weekend. So we have stories from the weekend to get into. We have stories from today. We are going to talk about the New York Times. New York Times discovering yeah, that imagine. Gina Haspel might have done some dodgy things. Imagine might have been witness to what's her nickname again, John? Bloody Gina. Oh, where? What is that? Because she's just so bloody tenacious. Right. She's, she, she's, There's so much to say about this. Yes. It's it's scandalous. It yeah. truly is. Scandalous. Yeah. We are going to get into that. We are going to talk about uh, Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and what kind of mess that might be. We yep. are going to talk about uh, what is ex- going on in Ukraine and it, it, what kind of escalation some of these new weapons might present. We are hoping to talk later in the show with a journalist who has been documenting some of the connections to domestic terror groups that uh, some of the men traveling to fight in Ukraine might have and why this is according to the Department of Homeland Security itself. Why such huge intelligence gaps remain uh, as to who these people's domestic connections are, what kind of training and networking they're doing overseas and what might happen if they come back. You know, let me add something to that, too. In 2009, I went to Yemen and uh, I I was with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff at the time. I wanted to do a a report on on the the situation on the ground there. And my first meeting was with the FBI uh, representative at the American Embassy in Sana'a. And as soon as I walked in, he told me, I'm going to do something for you and you're going to do something for me. And it's not often that you get a meeting like that. I said, sure. So he told me that the FBI at the time was tracking 36, what he described as blonde haired, blue eyed Americans in Yemen who had converted to Islam, were there to undergo terrorist training at Al Qaeda camps and were preparing to return to the United States. They had American passports. They're American citizens. They have a right to come back to their country. Blue eyes and blonde hair. You you don't expect them to be Al Qaeda terrorists. Right. We're in the same situation again. Yeah. Right now. All these years later, because you have radicalized people mm-hmm. in most cases, self-radicalized. Yeah. Going to Ukraine to to gain combat experience that then they can use to come back to the United States and conduct domestic terrorist operations. Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's an interesting um, and, you know, I'm hoping to bring this up to our guest, but there was an analysis by the Brookings Institute um, from earlier this year talking about the the threat of right far right and white nationalist domestic terrorism in the United States, which, of course, is is real, consistently rated like the greatest threat. Right. Or sometimes they hedge and say among the greatest threats. But that's number even Chris Ray himself came out and said that was the greatest threat right during the Trump years. Uh, And this Brookings Institute uh, analysis, you know, notes that and says basically in a paragraph says the good news is these guys are mostly hapless. Yeah. Well, what idiots. happens when they're not? So exactly. Hapless? I mean, this and is you don't I think need the... to be a genius to pull a trigger. Yeah. So this is something that we really ought to be thinking about and yeah. preparing for. So we are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other cool stuff like a the world's biggest trial of a 4-day work week. 
yeah. uh, launching in the UK today. Pretty great. Set to launch in, um, it, it, launching in England today, set to launch in Scotland and Spain later this year. I'm very excited about that. Uh, and I had a couple of stories I wanted to mention before we we get into the rest of the show. And one is just, you know, we spoke on Thursday to our great frequent guest, John Kane, who mm-hmm. hosts the Let's Talk Native podcast yes. and Resistance Radio. Um, and he noted something that, you know, we've said before that Canada, Canada really, with its reputation for niceness, gets a pass on its virulent racism against First Nations people, right? And which, of course, you know, hashtag not all Canadians, right? Just the same as not all not all Americans are racist either. But right. the country itself as a, as a whole has a pretty gruesome history and a, and a present that is also uh, not stellar. And there was an incident over the weekend uh, where a truck driver drove I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, He didn't drive directly through a march, uh, but he hit several people uh, who were marching. It was a march to the St. Mary's Residential School in British Columbia. It was a march of perhaps a few dozen people from what I can see. So it's not like, you know, miles and miles of hundreds or thousands of people marching. Yes. Uh, But they marched down a local highway and then onto reservation land to make their way up to the school. There is video of what happened, right? So you have this march. Yes, it does block the highway uh, for for a few minutes, right? And you can see there is video of the moment where this this happened, although it's not necessarily of the truck itself. But you can see that there are maybe maybe like eight cars backed up uh-huh. on the highway. Uh-huh. You really are talking about a delay of maybe five minutes, right? Uh, perhaps. And this truck driver, I guess, just could not wait. Uh, and uh, witnesses describe it as also I want to say these are people who are wearing orange shirts. Orange shirts in Canada are a signifier of of remembrance of residential schools. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Okay. A couple a couple years back. I don't think quite a decade ago. They um, started. There's a sort of tradition of orange shirt day where you wear an orange shirt to sort of commemorate. Uh, the people who who were lost or forever changed by those schools. Uh, you also had a couple of people in regalia. So I think it probably would have been pretty clear that this is a march of First Nations people. This is something related to that history. Uh, this truck driver decides he can't wait, speeds around a bunch of cars, gets stopped by somebody in the road, and there's some kind of back and forth. And then he just goes on. He hits four people. <gasps> Yeah, bloodies four people. Uh, two of them, again, according to these local witnesses, went to the hospital. Uh, and then they say the RCMP sent one officer out to the site, didn't seem really that interested in the incident. And they're still calling the guy an impatient driver, although now they're saying they're not ruling out a hate crime. And so it just was worth noting, you know, this is this is just this is not in a very big town. It's in a small place in British Columbia. It's not a lot of people who were there to witness it, but probably, you know, represents more than I think a lot of people would like to yes. admit the, the way Native people are still treated on this continent. And I wanted to just that's, make sure that doesn't just disappear. That's a very important point, too. It's something that I've always um, I've always wondered about, because you're right. Canadians do have this reputation as being just lovely people, mm-hmm. right? Very nice, very friendly. And then they have this dark past with the residential schools and with First yeah. Nation people. Have you ever heard of the Starlight Tours? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's we talked about this on the show, actually, a a while back when I first learned about it. Yeah, this was in I think it was in uh, Manitoba practice of uh, police there picking up picking up people, mostly native people, arresting them for for being drunk in public or whatever, driving them out to the middle of nowhere in the middle of winter and leaving them. And then they freeze to death. And that was like 
a decade ago. Yeah. 30, you know, it was in a period of time spanning about, uh, I think, 10 or 15 years in the 80s and 90s, I think. So, again, like the past is not all that past, especially in, in some quarters. Yeah. Yeah. Just awful. We also had some breaking news, John. Uh, Summit of the Americas. Have you forgotten all about that? Oh, yeah, I did, actually. The Summit yeah. of the Americas. It's, it's starting tomorrow. It's starting tomorrow, June 7th. Uh, and there was a period of time, right, when, when the Biden administration began to uh, try to reestablish some connections with Venezuela uh, because we desperately want their oil to replace Russian oil on the market, which is a topic we'll get into more later today. And there was some discussion that maybe this would mean that the summit could be saved because, of course, you have the U.S. hosting the summit for the first time since 1994. And the Biden administration has decided not to invite uh, representatives from the governments of Cuba, Venezuela or Nicaragua. Right. Quite a few governments uh, in the rest of the continent didn't like that. And so it was just announced uh, half an hour or so ago that the president of Mexico will, in fact, not be attending because he thinks if you are going to have this summit of the Americas, all of the Americas should be represented. Exactly. That's the whole point. Yeah. Right. That's that's why we have the Organization of American States. Whether you like their politics or not, they're American states. Yeah. So AMLO is not going uh, unclear whether some of the I think the the government of Bolivia had said we have a lot of doubts about attending this if it's so who knows if they're going to decide to not go in the end. But yeah, I mean, in the meantime, uh, Anthony Blinken, Kamala Harris and President Biden are traveling to their summit of a handful of (laughs) states in California. So congratulations. Nothing is working for Joe Biden right it's now. It's not really. It's we not. have a gas at a new record, right? I think the record last week was 464 or something, yeah. and now it's 486. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to Georgia over the weekend for a wedding, and I was shocked at how cheap gas was. And cheap really has become a relative term. It was yes. 4.199 everywhere. 4.199. Yep. I get back up here, and it's like 4.99.9 and 5.19 at the place by my house. Mm-hmm outrageous it's expensive it's and terrible who knows what's going to happen to to bring it down and and people lots of americans including this one uh are are either canceling or postponing or reconsidering travel one of the things that i love to do on the weekends is just get in the car and just drive somewhere mm-hmm. i like to go to the mountains or you know you go to the chesapeake bay or baltimore or philadelphia to a museum or whatever just to get out of town and I stopped doing that. Yeah. Just because, you know, a tank of gas now is, is what, 65, 70 bucks? Yep. Yep. And if I go to New York, that's three tanks of gas I have to think Actually, about. not. If you have a 2002 Toyota Echo, your tank of gas is a lot cheaper, <laughs> I will say. I was, like, I was like, I'm with you. I'm with you. 60 or 70 bucks. What yeah. kind of tank have you got? I've, I've got a 2014 Mercedes C300. Yeah. Yeah. I got a ta- I got about a, a seven gallon tank. So, uh, yeah. Mine's, mine's cheap. like 15 and a half. Yeah. But you probably don't have to manual reset your trip odometer every time you head out because your gas gauge is kind of broken. And so you're just like, well, I'll just fill up every 250 miles. How about that? Uh, still fine. It's still kicking. Don't worry about us. We're fine. <laughs> I also wanted to mention this um, uh, this editorial in The New York Times over the weekend about the death of Shireen Abu Akla, uh, the Palestinian-American journalist. There were I, I, this was uh, brought to my attention by other journalists, journalists commenting on it, saying 
This is this is weird. I think it was Alex Press who writes a lot for uh, Jacobin saying like, OK, so you say she died. Here's all the evidence for why Israel did it. But uh, to sum up, don't, you know, don't yeah. uh, fall into a fog of recrimination and hatred. It's like, oh, what do you mean? Yeah, so no, I, mean, I, I prefer to to hate and to uh, offer recriminations. I mean, it, it, the Times notes that in this piece, again, it, by the editorial board, it says Shireen and her partner, who was also shot, were wearing blue body armor. They were clearly marked as press. It notes that the Palestinian Authority initially said uh, Abu Akla had been targeted and that investigations by the PA and by CNN found evidence that suggested in CNN's words, Abu Akla was shot dead in a targeted attack by Israeli forces, and that mm-hmm. there was no active combat, nor any Palestinian militants near her in the moments leading up to her death. And of course, Israel had said, ah, she was probably shot by one of you bad guys. Right. Uh, that seems to be not the case. Again, in the words of CNN, not radicals out here by any means, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It also noted that The Israeli military said from the start that journalists covering violence are always at risk. A military spokesperson said Abu Akla was filming and working for a media outlet amidst armed Palestinians. They're armed with cameras, if you'll permit me to say so. And that basically from the start had either said Palestinians probably killed her or uh, she's a legitimate military target because of what she's covering and, you know, where where she is. It notes that Israeli. That's outrageous. It is outrageous. But they, that's that has been the tune from the Israelis from the start. It notes that Israeli officers attacked mourners at her funeral, but then concludes even if she wasn't singled out, uh, Israel still needs to grapple with how this happened and what can be done to avoid similar tragedies. How vague? How much more vague can you get? It's basically saying we're not going to say that Israel did it, right? right. We're not going to come out and do our own investigation or whatever. We're Even just going to say. the Israelis have said that they did it. Although just, they said they did it because they felt they had to do it. But right. yeah, why do we constantly, constantly cover for the Israelis? And I just, just don't understand They should it. just feel bad, John. They have to grapple with what happened. And you know, those, those shooters were close enough to know, of course, that she was wearing body armor, which is why they shot her in the face. Yeah. You shoot a journalist in the face just because you don't like the outlet that she works for. Yeah. But let's not descend into a fog of recrimination and hatred. And again, like, of course, the the, uh, a fruitful result of this is not to just be mad at Israelis or Israel. Right. Right. I mean, yes, it would be good if if the result of her death is fewer deaths of journalists all over the place. But achieving that feeling bad is not what's going to achieve that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, finding a, a, a specific replicable way to hold the people accountable who, who do these things yes, is it. And that is right. something we have absolutely no appetite for doing. Honestly, when it comes to American troops, when it comes to any of our allies, not just Israel in this case, although Israel is, you know, uh, a pretty egregious violator of these. And, and we should remember, too, that Shireen Abu Akla was an American citizen. Yeah. She was an American citizen. And what has her country done to investigate her assassination? It has just Nothing. said, hey, you guys should really do a good investigation, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't don't get too mad at anybody. Yeah, that has been right. the message. It's yeah. Yeah, I thought that was worth uh, worth noting out. Very different response Definitely. than we saw from the Washington Post when it comes to uh, Jamal Khashoggi as well. You can say that again. Yeah. The Washington Post was practically willing to go to war with Saudi Arabia over Jamal Khashoggi. And they they wrote about him almost every day for an entire year. Yeah. 
And granted, we've walked away from Jamal Khashoggi, too. Yeah. There's no justice in that case. But at least they didn't roll over immediately. Right. Uh, right. Like we did with the Israelis. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've got some funny news about Tesla, but I'm going to save that yeah. little treat for later. <laughs> Sorry, Tesla owners out there. It's just too much fun to talk about these self-driving fails. But we're not going to do that now. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to get into the show. We'll still be live in D.C., still on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Last week, we told you that the Biden administration had announced that it would not sell multiple launch rocket systems that could reach Russian territory to Ukraine. A day later, President Biden announced that he had reversed that decision. In response, President Putin said that the Russian military would attack weapons depots in Ukraine that it had previously allowed to remain operative. And today, Russia launched multiple rocket strikes in Kyiv for the first time in weeks. This morning, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said that the UK would now also send multiple launch rocket systems to Ukraine. Meanwhile, President Zelensky visited Ukrainian troops in Donetsk and Luhansk, as well as in the southern city of Zaporizhia. In other news, the U.S. media seems to be finally coming to the realization that the bloody war in Yemen that has been going on for so many years, it's actually just a little bit more than seven years now, and has been backed by the United States, was actually backed by the United States. Oh, boy. Yeah. And that the United States supplied Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates with fighter jets, missiles, rockets, and whatever else they needed to make war on Yemen. Can you imagine that? Only now is the media saying that maybe this was a mistake. In fact, the media told us over the weekend that human rights violations may have been committed. War I'm, crimes. I'm making such an astonished face right now. Why did nobody notice any of this? Anyway, how times change. In other news, the U.S. for the first time in two years will allow Italian oil company Eni and Spanish oil company Repsol to ship Venezuelan oil to Europe in exchange for debt payment. Notice I used the word allow. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh, the Venezuelan oil will partially make up for the loss of Russian oil in Western Europe. We're going to talk about this and more with Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action magazine. He's also the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars. And the Russians are coming again with John Marciano. Welcome back, Jeremy. Oh, we always enjoy having you, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us. President Putin made it clear last week that he would view the provision of these multiple launch uh, missile systems as a red line. And respect for that red line lasted all of 24 hours. Now both the U.S. and the U.K. have announced that they would send those systems to Ukraine. As a result, the Russians have stepped up attacks on Kyiv and on Ukrainian weapons depots. Does this just play out like a Bugs Bunny cartoon where each side keeps stepping 
up to bigger weapons until, you know, there's a nuclear uh, conflict uh, that wipes out the, the, the cartoon world? Or does this end in some different kind of way? What are we looking at happening here? Yeah, I, I think it's also a lot of a doctor, you know, the film Doctor Strange Globe, which kind of parodies. Oh, definitely. You know, it parodies that mindset of, of just more weapons, more bombs, culminating in you know, a nuclear war and, and these kind of yeah. war hungry you know, generals. Now we're seeing more war hungry you know, civilian officials masquerade as liberals uh, who are, you know, leading us into possible, you know, world war, nuclear war. I mean, I don't know where this ends, but. It doesn't end well for anybody, and it's just pure insanity. I mean, Dan Ellsberg, the great whistleblower, referred to uh, these officials you know, who are talking about a nuclear first strike uh, very casually as, as criminally insane. And I think we have to judge our leaders as criminally insane. I mean, you know, there ample have been ample opportunities for diplomatic engagement, even. In the course of this war, there are plenty of opportunities uh, and negotiating points that could end this conflict, but instead, uh, Western leaders seem hell-bent on uh, escalating this war to into the possibly the abyss, the nuclear abyss or, or world war. Tell me something about Russian strategy that I don't fully understand. Like many of us, um, my friends are strongly, solidly pro-Ukrainian on this, right? They they don't read the same outlets that I read. They don't look at the same historical context that I look at. And, you know, they just parrot back to me what they hear on CNN or, or MSNBC. So I want to ask you, the, the Russians are so superior militarily to the Ukrainians. The Russians could have been bombing these um, these uh, weapons depots, arms depots, whatever you call them, ammunition depots. They could have been doing this from the, the start of the war. They could have been attacking Kiev from the start of the war. They could have been targeting President Zelensky. And, and they haven't. Now, they had threatened that if these missile systems, these multiple launch systems were to be delivered to Ukraine, that they would step up their own attacks. Um, why haven't they stepped up attacks sooner? Uh, I mean, that's an excellent question. I mean, Russia did present a set of limited war objectives of, of denazification yeah. uh, and kind of ending the conflict in, in eastern Ukraine and liberating those territories. Uh, and they, you know, I think Zelensky acknowledged that Russia, I think, controlled 20 percent of Ukrainian territory, including corridors around Crimea. Uh, so that may have been the, the strategic gain that Russia has sought, uh, you know, to, to end the conflict in eastern Ukraine stabilize the situation there, incorporate certain territories that would uh, uh, give them control of the entire region of Crimea where they have their naval base. So they, they may have, you know, be pursuing those strategic objectives. I mean, regime change is a tricky proposition. The you know western part of Ukraine, I think, uh, it, it definitely divided. You know, there are you know, strong anti-Russian sentiments uh, throughout Ukraine, especially uh, in Kiev and, and western Ukraine. So, I mean, I mean, we saw with the U.S. in Iraq, you know, regime change is always difficult uh, in any context. And you know, I think you know, Russia is 
I mean, they're smart and they're cautious. They know that that's a very tricky proposition. They know the you know population. Uh, they you know may encounter a lot of hostility. So I mean, you can bomb the hell out right. of uh, towns, but what's that going to achieve in the end if you haven't you know won the hearts and minds, as they say? So I, I think Russia does have a set of strategic objectives they're pursuing. From their end, the, the war may be going successfully. Of course, the human cost has been very, very high. Uh, but you know, why their war is not necessarily in their interest, just like pulverizing cities like Kiev, you know, to what end? So that's that's an important point. I think their their strategic goal is not to pulverize cities. The strategic goal is not to wipe out civilian populations. And they were clear about what they wanted to do from the very uh, beginning. Um, Does the renewal of attacks on Kiev uh, change anything? Does this seem like a a different strategy to you? Or is it simply a response to the the missile systems announcement? It may be in part a response. Yeah, I I always remember from the Putin, uh, the film Oliver Stone made uh, where he interviewed Putin. And, you know, Putin said there's always going to be a reaction uh, you know, to Western behavior. And that's what I think, you know, I've, we've seen the conflict writ large because Russia, I think, you know, clearly was provoked uh, and the U.S. has, you know, been the aggressor and Western countries uh, toward Russia rather than vice versa, going all the way back to 2014 with the coup and even the sanctions policy that came out of nowhere at a time that Russia had been promoting more uh, diplomatic cooperation. Uh, so this may be just another line, you know, Putin reacting and I mean, he's showing that Russia is not, you know, is not a pushover and will stand up for itself. And I think that's one reason Putin is popular within Russia compared to, you know, his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, was just kind of seen as a pushover and kind of sold out the country's interests to Western interests and the oligarchs that, that looted Russia and weakened it greatly. So, I mean, we have to remember why Putin does have support and that he's going to stand up you know, and show himself standing up for Russian interests. And if the U.S. and Western country keep pushing his buttons, this is just going to escalate further yeah, into a, a wider war, potentially, which is very, very dangerous. You know, I, I watched uh, this CNN piece last night, uh, Inside the Mind of Vladimir Putin, which made me laugh because at the CIA, you know, they, they brag about we have to get inside the mind of so-and-so, Saddam Hussein or whomever. And you can't. You can't do that, right? Because you're not anywhere in proximity to this person. And you can't do a psychological evaluation of somebody by long distance. You just can't. You can write a little analysis or whatever, but you can't do it. But anyway, uh, it's this guy, uh, Fareed Zakaria, the, who, the self-professed smartest man on television, right? And um, he said something at the end. He, he goes through this show and he's showing clips of Vladimir Putin singing um, Blueberry Hill, right? I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. And then addressing the German parliament in German, where he sounds like a German, like he doesn't even have an accent or anything. Uh, and uh, talking to Bill Clinton and saying, look, you know, Russia would be interested in joining NATO. And showing how all through the 90s and into the 2000s, we had a working relationship with the United States yeah. with, with Russia. He showed uh, multiple clips uh, of Putin with George W. Bush, where Bush said, this is a man of faith. I looked into his eyes and I saw his soul and we can do business with him and et cetera, et cetera. And then he closes the show by saying, 
that Vladimir Putin is not crazy. He's evil. And that's why we can't deal with him. And I thought to myself, you know what? You had me up until the very end. Yeah. You know, like, how do you, where do you come up with this analysis? This is your analysis that the reason he invaded Ukraine was because he's evil? Yeah. But it's also just like, you could even say, you could even say, okay, Vladimir Putin is evil. And that's why we can't do business with him is sort of the like, okay, well, why is that? Why not? It doesn't seem to stop us in any other case where you could do the same analysis. You're telling me the Saudis aren't evil? Exactly, right? right? Or even all the leaders of Egypt who we cooperated with for such a long time. Every one of them has been evil. Israel we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and so about these generals in Latin America over the decades? Yes. They weren't evil? Yeah. Slaughtering their own people? Pinochet? Seriously. Yeah. No, exactly. That's sort of why, like, okay, all right, you've done the, sure. I mean, whatever. I don't care. I don't Sure. Yeah. Take me, take my hand, walk me down a path to the right. conclusion that this person is evil. Again, like, how do you look at him as not, not say, okay, let's look at also the, the U.S. officials who were, who were, uh, you know, saying this is someone who we can work with. Yes. Like the Bush administration, for example, and, and the Dick Clinton Cheney. administration. Again, like if, if evil, <laughs> as it should be, if evil should be a disqualifying factor, there are just so many other pins to knock down. Well, we will and then have... you raise the question, not should we work with evil people, but why do we decide some of the people we, we want to work with are evil and some aren't yeah. when the, quali- the qualities are the same? Right, right, exactly. Jeremy, this is a long way of, of me asking you, is this just a propaganda line that we're all now supposed to follow? That, that we can't have normal relations with Russia because Vladimir Putin is evil? That we have to be involved in this war because Vladimir Putin is evil. And if if that's the line that we're being fed as Americans, uh, how does that end? Yeah, I think it's a propaganda line. You know, I follow the media. Actually, Putin was presented very favorably uh, in the first years. You know, in that period when relations, because yes. he when yeah. he came in succeeding Yeltsin, he wanted to. Uh, Establish, you know, and sustain very good relations with the United States, which had started to deteriorate, I think, after the Kosovo War. But he was, you know, after, uh, I think, as you point out, after 9/11, he was the first to call Bush. Uh, so, you know, at that point, he was portrayed very well in the media as somebody very smart and intelligent. And then it only shifted when began when he started uh, moving against certain local oligarchs who had ties in the West and the United States. That's when he started to be demonized. And then he didn't support the Iraq war. And then he got spooked out by the Libya war. Uh, And there was also, you know, intervention like in Georgia, which actually the EU blamed Georgia, not Russia, uh, for intervention there. Uh, And then, you know, gradually, I think Putin was taking, you know, more uh, adopting more nationalistic policies, started speaking out against certain U.S. foreign policies and international forum. And that's when this demonization began. And yeah, you can compare with the demonization of other leaders. Well, firstly, it's, it's this tendency to psychologize and personalize world conflicts that are rooted in, you know, geopolitical rivalry. Uh, yeah. But, you know, they obscure all that and they make like it's oh, evil Saddam Hussein, evil Muammar Gaddafi, evil Fidel Castro. Uh, and they play on certain maybe even religious impulses of the American public uh, who unfortunately uh, are not always as well informed about geopolitical rivalries and phenomenon because the media never covers that very well. And the educational system Unfortunately, often fails in that area as well. So they're, they're not very well informed. They don't really understand some of the imperial drives of the United States uh, that provoke uh, certain policies among leaders.
like a Putin, because all these leaders have in common, they're kind of anti-imperialist or nationalist. They're trying to nationalize the economic resource of their countries. Uh, they're trying to assert, you know, more power uh, in their country, though, so they could kind of block certain drive by the United States. Uh, but the the American public doesn't really, the majority don't understand that very well. And the pro, I mean, I think some people do, but the propaganda, you know, they they push this line of these evil di- dictators and obscures yes. all those issues. And you know, this issue in the Ukraine conflict, it's it's a very complex situation that really was started by aggression by the United States in twenty well, first with the sanctions. Those policies were instituted for no uh, sound reason. They were adopted because of lobbyists who uh, looted Russia uh, during the 1990s, and Putin was adopting more, you know, uh, attempting to control the Russian economy more, uh, and they mm-hmm. lost out on a lot of revenue and opportunity under the wild you know, West days of Boris Yeltsin. So they started lobbying for sanctions and pushed this demonization. Uh, and then in 2014, you had the coup that the blatant coup d'état that the U.S. Uh, supported to overthrow the pro-Russian leader Viktor Yanukovych that created the mess and mm-hmm. created the first place, and that's you know that's on Russia's border. Uh, a, a pro-Russian leader is overthrown illegally, and the neo-Nazi groups start rampaging in the country, and then they wage war on eastern Ukraine. You know they impose these language laws that the eastern Ukrainians repudiate, and when they try and secede, uh, they they start bombing uh, bombing them. So I mean that was all provoked by the United States and the Western countries as well as you know uh, right-wing elements within ukraine so that's going to engender response uh by any government especially a large power like russia uh so most of putin's policies are very rational and would have been enacted by any russian leader but this you know, media campaign is just to make like he's evil incarnate and associate him with like saddam hussein and build uh, right condition the public to support regime change or war, and it's it's a very effective propaganda technique that has been perfected over years, and fortunately, it it impacts even very well educated people uh, who don't always follow geopolitical developments closely. Indeed, yeah. W- one of the clips. I'll, I'll get off this subject in just a second. It was just such an outrageous show. I had to say something. One of the clips is some think tank guy saying, "Well, of course you can't trust Putin." He's an intelligence officer. And I said to the TV, so was George H.W. Bush. He was the head of the CIA, but we're supposed to trust him. Crazy. Okay. We have talked countless times on this show about the war in Yemen. And groups like Code Pink have been very active in exposing it and um, and opposing it as well. Uh, now, seven years after the war began, the U.S. media is finally realizing that war crimes have been committed and that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been utterly reliant on U.S. weapons and weapon systems. What do you think took so long? And with the recent ceasefire extended there, do you think the war might be coming to a close? Well, I, <laughs> I would hope it's close. Yeah, it's had a terrible impact uh, on the Yemeni population. I mean, I think yeah, now, well, Biden's going to be to Saudi Arabia next month, uh, or, or I don't know if it's later this month, uh, you know, because of the situation with the oil and, and natural gas, and, you know, they're to court the Saudis to, you know, revitalize their relationship. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe they want to kind of, uh, you know, if Saudi, push Saudi, urge, you know, if, Saudi, if the Saudis can end the war, that would maybe clean up their image a little bit and, and rationalize a little more or legitimate doing business with them, 
which they seem to need because of the attempt to isolate Russia and the need for new oil and gas supplies and to reaffirm that relationship. So it probably relates to you know geopolitical developments. And uh, the yeah, U.S. has coveted a Socotra island base off Yemen. And that's always oh, yes. the underlying war aim. Uh, so you know they're going to pursue, continue to pursue those imperial objectives. And the yeah, media will call it a mistake. I mean, it was not really a mistake. The U.S. was pursuing imperial objectives uh, in supporting this war. Uh, so that's not really a mistake. But it led to a horrific outcome that at least they're publicizing a little bit, which is better than before. But yeah, finally. Um. Is it possible, do you think, to rebuild Yemen? It's it's one of the poorest countries in the world. We've talked about that. It's been ravaged by war. And even before the attack by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, it was it was torn apart by sectarian conflict. People are starving there. There's no clean water. There's no access to medica- uh, medications. Uh, COVID just burned right through the country. I read recently that for a population of slightly more than 30 million people, there are two dentists in the country. 30 million people, and there are two dentists. How does the international community even begin to help Yemenis put their country back together? Is it, is it even possible? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you look at Afghanistan, I don't think Afghanistan, you know, the people have been suffering you know, and they impose these sanctions with, with the Taliban coming in, the government they don't like. Uh, so, I mean, it may depend on political developments. You know, if Houthi uh, gain greater power and it's a government more allied with Iran, they may try and do the same thing that they do with Afghanistan or they're doing with Syria, you know, impl- impose these cruel sanctions or, or blockade or uh, do nothing yeah. to alleviate the human the misery. Uh, so it'll depend on the you know, uh, political uh, development in the country. Uh, but even then, I mean, I think, yeah, there's so much, uh, the country is so dependent on, on foreign aid. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much foreign aid could turn around the situation yeah, if they have no medical doctors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like applying a, a Band-Aid to a, a gushing well or something. I mean, it would have some positive impact, but again, it'll depend on the political uh, trajectory of the country, the, the extent to which they actually uh, try and uh, provide some aid to help them. Um, I remember, well, it's been a while now, it's been 31, 32 years since my first uh, visit to Yemen. Uh, Yemen had been a, a net food exporter, right? There was plenty of underground water. There's this enormous aquifer that stretched from uh, West Africa all the way across the the Sahara Desert. And it began to come closer to the surface under Yemen and then finally came up in Bahrain where water used to just gush out of the ground. Those days are long gone. And the Yemenis made a terrible strategic error back in the 1980s to stop cultivating food and to use their arable land to cultivate got, which they, they chew uh, as a, as a, what do you call it? A, a, a hunger suppressant and a stimulant, right. So um, could they even go back to something like that? I mean, can, can you start farming for food anymore when, when you've got a culture where, where people would rather 
have got and no shoes for their children. Totally serious when I say this. Rather than, you know, food and and uh, being able to export it. Can you go back to that? When, when I was there in 1991, uh, the, the Danish government had just finished uh, building a sewer system for Sana'a, the capital city. It was a major development in Yemen. They, they had their first ever sewer system. And, um, and there were plans by the European Union to upgrade the electrical grid. The Italians were there. Uh, helping to work on that. It was, it was a period of real optimism. And, uh, and then it just ended. And here we are now, 30 years later, the country's in a state of chaos. People are starving to death. They're getting bombed at the same time. And they have to start back from, from scratch. Is it even possible? Well, I, I think it's possible, you know, if they have good leadership, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. But, you know, we've seen the neoliberal model fail many countries. Uh, from my understanding of Yemeni politics, you know, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who ruled for many years, you know, a good friend of the United States uh, in the early war on terror years and was allowing drone strikes uh, and was adopting a neoliberal economic program. Yes. Advanced economic austerity. I mean, I, I think that's a failed model. Uh, I think countries have to, you know, uh, who adopt more social democratic model and try and develop uh, their own uh, internal agriculture and industry uh, can succeed over generations. Uh, uh, so, it, you know, requires good leadership and often, uh, you know, independence from, from foreign powers who have their own agenda and interests. So one hopes uh, Yemen might be able to recover over the next generation or two if, if good leaders emerge and the country can sustain its independence. And it's certainly in U.S. interests for for the Yemeni government to be a stable and successful government, no matter who's heading it, you know, whether it's the likes of Ali Abdullah Saleh or those who have come after him or or the Houthis. Right. I remember in in 1990, after the Iraqis had invaded Kuwait, uh, the U.S. went to the United Nations Security Council um, asking for a resolution to authorize the use of force to push the Iraqis out. And um, the Cubans were on the Security Council at the time, and we knew that they would vote no. But the Yemenis were also on the Security Council. And I remember James Baker telling Ali Abdullah Saleh, you have to vote yes on this use of force, or there's going to be a price to pay, and you're not going to want to even know what the price is. And the Yemenis joined the Cubans and voted no, and they were the only two no votes. And so immediately, I mean, like within days, Saudi Arabia announced a policy to, to throw out literally every Yemeni worker out of Saudi Arabia. And there were millions of them. It was something like six million guest workers uh, that were in Saudi Arabia. They were thrown out. Well, Yemen couldn't absorb six million people returning to its country. I flew into Yemen in March of 1991, and for 20 minutes before the plane landed, you're flying right above these shanty towns that had been erected, made out of, you know, cardboard boxes or, or lean-tos with corrugated tin roofs. People were starving to death back in 1991 and in Saudi Arabia and in Kuwait and Bahrain and, and uh, the United Arab Emirates, they were saying that, uh, that there will be no Yemenis 
in their country, that the Yemenis had made their bed and they were the ones that had to lay in it or lie in it, whatever the proper English is. <laughs> and so, uh, and so here we are 30 years later, 31 years later, and there's, and the Yemeni people are still paying the price for a foreign policy decision that was made by men who aren't even alive anymore. It's like there's there's no way to turn this thing around, especially because the Saudis at all uh, just won't forgive and forget, even though it's in Saudi Arabia's national interests to help develop the Yemeni economy, help to build jobs in Yemen, make Yemen food stable so that you don't have to worry about launching a war on these people. What do you think? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, a bit of history and yeah, kind of brute, you know, imperial exercise with the country that won't go along with their for the region, and that's what we you know, can fear in the future. If, if Yemen uh, develops an independent government, uh, they're not going to want to go along with the U.S. design, yeah, including uh, the Socotra base. I think has been leased you know, right. to the United Arab Emirates. So an independent Yemeni government is going to want to uh, get that back for for Yemen. Uh, so it's going to create a conflict with the United States, and they can use these means that you've been describing, economic warfare, to continuously punish them, like they're trying to do now with Afghanistan and the Taliban rule and Syria under Assad's rule. Uh, and that could result in a great difficulty for yeah. the Yemeni population, yeah. or they could promote regime change to try and secure a Saudi proxy a leader in Yemen that will not develop the economy along the lines you're discussing and will keep them impoverished. Uh, so a very difficult terrain for uh, politicians uh, to uh, operate in, in. It's a difficult future that lies ahead. And Americans should be more aware of how their government and country use these kind of tactics to impoverish and immiserate people in countries around the world. And it's, it's a kind of mafia tactic you're describing that uh, our population shouldn't uh, put up with our government behaving like a, a mafia don. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Jeremy, before we let you go, I have to ask you about uh, these headlines related to the sale of Venezuelan oil to uh, to Europe. Uh, the headlines were that the U.S. was allowing the sale or permitting the sale. Um, be that as it may, tell us about this agreement and what it means for both sides. The agreement, as we know it today, is that the Venezuelans are going to ship um, oil to Spain and to Italy. And instead of being paid in cash, the money will be used to pay down Venezuelan debt. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's kind of a Given the demonization of Venezuela, uh, we've seen over the last 10 years, and uh, you know, Obama, I think, was the first to call a major national security threat. And I think Mom, Mike Pompeo uh, recently wrote something where he acknowledged they were trying to overthrow the government. And you know, the, the socialist government of Chavez and Maduro were demonized for years, and there were clear regime change operations. And all of a sudden. And they were supporting supporting the renegade Juan Guaido and no legitimacy within Venezuela. And all of a sudden, they need oil. You know, they need alternative uh, oil supplier because of the situation Ukraine and Russia. Uh, they're much more open to doing business with Venezuela. You'll probably see an easing of rhetoric and maybe these regime change uh, operations. So it's it's just kind of ironic from my point of view. And it shows how these human rights issues are usually uh, mask underlying you know, geopolitical rivalries uh, and agendas. And a lot of it is just kind of 
uh, you know, it relates to what you were discussing earlier with Putin evil, but what about Saudi Arabia? Uh, yeah. And all of this is just like for show for the public. And it's really, you know, their underlying agendas at play. And you can see that clearly play out now if you look at the U.S. relationship with, with Venezuela. Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov, thanks for joining us. Jeremy is the managing editor of Covert Action magazine. He is also the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. And actually, before we let Jeremy go, can you tell our listeners about uh, um, upcoming event or the big upcoming event that Covert Action magazine is putting on in New York? I know we have some listeners in New York and uh, this might be a fun uh, opportunity. Uh, yes, we're uh, running a fundraising event on June 25th. Uh, you can look at our website for more details, and you can watch it online. And yeah, If you're in New York, uh, we welcome uh, people to uh, come, and we're trying to raise money for our magazine. So just like you at Radio Sputnik, you know, we're trying to do more independent uh, journalism to really expose the truth about what's going on uh, beyond you know, mainstream media, which presents often very one-sided viewpoints. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. There's a couple of stories to slide in here before we head to our break at one o'clock. And one of them is the story that we referenced earlier at the top of the show. It's a report in the gray zone by investigative reporter Alex Rubenstein that looks into uh, looks into some of the more high-profile um, American fascists yeah. who have traveled to Ukraine and uh, have started fighting there on behalf of Ukraine against Russia. And, you know, what What exactly people should wonder about when these people start to come back home if they make it through that conflict. And this is not just, you know, the gray zone that's worrying about this. This, this story is based on uh, an unclassified document from the uh, the U.S. Border Patrol, Customs and Border Patrol, which is, of course, under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. That's right. Noting that, yes, indeed, people are traveling overseas to take part in this fighting and that there are some pretty significant intelligence gaps when it comes to who they're going to be mixing it up with and what they're going to be learning and doing over there. Some of the things that this document notes as intelligence gaps are what kind of training are foreign fighters receiving in Ukraine that they could possibly proliferate in U.S.-based militia and white nationalist groups? That seems like a question worth asking. Uh, what additional online recruitment platforms are being used? What instructions and directions are given when they arrive in Ukraine? And what websites or chat rooms are those fighters seeking out? And again, like what this points to is this total lack of oversight at least according to uh, this document, yes. but also according to a lot of reporting, this real lack of oversight yeah, as to exactly what, what it is. is happening, both with the individuals who are going there from the United States yeah. and probably with the weapons that we're sending. Yeah. So on one hand, just absolutely shoveling money and material out the door toward this conflict. And on the other hand, just 
no no oversight of what is what is happening, where it might go afterward. We have yeah. talked about where these weapons might end up afterward. But, you know, it, this is as of again, this is this is also uh, comes from the reporting of uh, Seth Harp. Right. Who is yes. not sympathetic to the Russian cause whatsoever. That's right. But does say, look, Azov has really grown in prestige. Uh, it is an international, you know, this this is international networking that is going on. Yes. And that continues. And, you know, the, these people that have, are documented, highlighted in this particular story, you know, these are guys who when I say they're fascists, it's because this uh, Paul Gray one of the men who's highlighted in this story is a member of the traditional workers party, traditionalist workers party, which yeah. is now defunct, a member of American Vanguard, a member of Adam Waffen division, a member of Patriot uh, Front. Right. This is the actual definition of fascism. Yeah. And to <laughs> highlight again how, how murky these uh, these waters actually are. This is also yeah. someone who has been highlighted on Fox News a number of oh, times. Oh, God. Sort of presented as a, a GI hero and someone who is over there fighting for democracy. And so, again, it is it, it is the the connections are so uh, counterintuitive and inconsistent. You know what yeah. I mean? Because on one hand, uh, unfortunately, some of the strongest voices criticizing our involvement, the, the ways that we are involved in this war in Ukraine have come from the U.S. right and from the sort of. Um, isolationist, yes. perhaps, yes. Uh, wing of the U.S. right, not it's from true. the left. And yet you have Fox, who's really always pretty excited to uh, glom on to some demonstrations of patriotism against yes. whatever traditional bad guy you're talking about, highlighting this. And so, yeah, it just is a, it, you don't have to, you don't have to lack sympathy for Ukraine. You don't have to feel sympathy for Russia to look at a situation like this, which is not so dissimilar from what right. we saw in Syria and, and, and so dissimilar from other uh, conflicts in which the U.S. has really involved itself and say, what is the blowback from this going to be? And is the way we are conducting ourselves really what is going to be best for, for most people? Right. And I, I think that this also raises some questions and again, raises some questions about oversight. Like I continue to be. Absolutely flabbergasted at the lack of forethought and planning that our government can actually engage in. Right. I mean, supposedly when we went into Iraq in 2003, it was with a, well, what happens afterward? Who knows? Who cares? Everything will probably be fine. You know, when we went during the COVID campaign. Right. Remember when the Biden administration said, oh, don't worry. In six to eight weeks, you can all get free four free COVID tests. Right. Per family. I've never received one. We had not had a year before that right. to consider how this might need to roll out. Right. And so again, maybe we just, should be manufacturing COVID tests. Yeah. Right. And so now, again, maybe we should be maybe we should be considering what kind of what kind of training uh, some of these fighters are going to come back with and keep better tabs on them, especially if, as we said at the beginning, this is the biggest terrorism threat we face. That's right. Internally, domestically as a nation. You know, this has been dragging on for years where we, we've we always believed that Americans have this God-given right to go anywhere we want in the world and nobody can stop us from returning to our own country. Doggone it, right? Unless you're code pink and you're coming back from a trip to Iran or Cuba, yeah. in which case you're harassed at Dulles Airport sometimes for an entire day. Yeah. But you go overseas to fight in Syria, in Ukraine, in Libya, in Yemen. And people tell you, welcome home. Like it's no big deal. Yeah. Just don't I also have to wonder, 
you know, what, what is the relationship between this this sort of exodus and this mythical uh, international legion fighting in Ukraine and yeah. why perhaps it that legion, if it isn't in, indeed fictional, which, you know, I think some of the more independent reporting coming out of the country really indicates if it is a fiction, is it also a convenient fiction to sort of obscure where exactly right. uh, a, a chunk of these fighters are going? And it's not necessarily to the Ukrainian army. It is to, uh, let's say, paramilitaries with a specific ideological focus. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and I think I think that might be part of it. If you if yeah, and this is the thing, just. If your endeavor doesn't bear scrutiny. You know, then we should have some questions about it, right? The solution, it seems like a lot of the solution in U.S. media is just to not look at it too closely. Like, ooh, there's not this independent <laughs> legion. Right. Yeah, I don't know, guys. Let's just, okay, well, let's just stop reporting on it, right? Let's not let's not look at it too closely because then we have to get into these weird, uh, weird and uncomfortable uh, revelations <laughs> that we don't really like. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. This is going to be a problem, and it's a problem that the FBI is not ready for and the Department of Homeland Security is not ready for. What happens then when this war ends and all these people come back and they have these weird fascist ideas about liberating portions of, you know, Idaho or the hollers of uh, of eastern Kentucky? And then all of a sudden we have a problem on our hands that we Hadn't anticipated. Yeah, and they're better able to do it. Again, you have the Brookings Institute going. The reason this isn't really an issue is that these guys are mostly disorganized. Uh, the movement is riven by infighting. They disagree on what targets to prioritize and who should lead. All of these seems to be like issues that uh, a little bit of time in a disciplined military could really help clear up. Yes. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be too alarmist with this. But again, it's just one of these many aspects of this conflict that I think bears a little bit more scrutiny than it's currently getting. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about Boris Johnson's no confident vote, other cool stuff happening in the UK, and what got a journalist banned from Twitter this time. More coming up here on Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're going to get into some stories about the U.S., the U.K., and China. Talk a little bit about uh, politics, political narratives, and social media, and just how sanitized we want our social media discussions to be. A lot of a lot of usual suspects happening here right now, but also some good and interesting news, I, I hope, right, in terms of that four-day workweek experiment. <laughs> Joining us for all of these conversations is journalist and author Dan Lazar. Dan, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I want to start, before we get into the really fiery stuff, with just some contrasting economic news from the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, we have been talking around this on the show for a while, uh, what the Fed is doing in the United States to curb inflation and what effects that actually will have. But I missed this exact quote from Jerome Powell last month saying the Fed is specifically trying to get wages down, wages in the U.S., 
where, where wages that are too yeah, high is not everything. our problem. I'm sorry. If your calculus leads you to that end, something's got to be wrong with it. So here's what, what he said last month. He said, by moderating demand, we could see vacancies come down. And as a result, and they could come down fairly significantly and I think put sl- supply and demand at least closer together than they are. And that would give us a chance to have lower to get inflation, to get wages down and then get inflation down without having to slow the economy, uh, have a recession and have unemployment rise. So we're going to get wages down and then we're going to get inflation down. And never mind what happens to people in the interim there, right? Never mind the kind of debt they get saddled with that you can never shake off or the more fearful consequences that might arise. And so as you have the U.S. trying to reduce wages for its people, we have the launch of the biggest trial yet of a four-day work week in the U.K. This involves more than 3,300 workers at 70 U.K. companies. They are today launching this trial that was organized by four-day work, four-day week global, the think tank autonomy, the four-day week campaign, and researchers at Cambridge, Oxford, and Boston College I don't think that these days the UK is a great example of a society that cares over much for the well-being of its population. But I think this trial is really interesting. I, I like this contrast with what we're trying to do in the US. And so I wonder if we can be cautiously optimistic or excited about this event, Dan. Well, we could be we could be excited about the, about this event. Whether we can be optimistic is a different question. I mean, okay, okay. I mean, storm clouds are really brewing. They're really, they're really rising up, um, and uh, I think the economy, is, the the global economy, is heading for a really, really rough patch. Um, and so, therefore, uh, you know, I can't, I can't see, you know, how an experiment like this, which is very interesting, exciting, but still very small scale, yeah. it's a, uh, it's a bubble on the surface of this great thrashing sea. And uh, and um, I'm just not optimistic it'll really have much effect long term. Yeah. What do you think? I, this is sort of just off the top of my head, but I am curious because, is, you know, you, you are not the first person to have said this, right? And I do think like, what if if the economy is about to just really crash around the world uh, and we're headed for some some a, a pretty dark period economically, what should regular people do? You know what I mean? What should we honestly like what how do you what do you do to prepare? Do you do you take your money out of your savings and try and buy a house now while you still can't? Or do you just sort of sit at your pile and go, well, I guess hyperinflation is going to eat you up in a little while, but there's nothing really else I can do. What what do you think? Well, as a, as a if, as an individual strategy, I mean, I would say, like, you know, pull on your horns. I mean, reduce debt. Yeah. Don't take on more debt. Yeah. Uh, reduce debt, you know. Pair your expenses back, you know, to some some reasonable level, you know, try to consolidate, uh, but don't overextend yourself because interest rates are rising. Yeah. And if you take on more debt, you'll be very vulnerable. Uh, you know, I mean, like all these various groups, you know, back in the early aughts who tried to, you know, who were trying to promote home, home ownership among the working poor and, and wasn't it terrible that the banks weren't lending to the working poor? I mean, I, I, I thought that was really crazy because the last thing a, a working poor person needs is is a is a take on a mortgage. Yeah. Uh, especially at a time when you know when, when the when the when the economy is turning rocky. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, and I think I think subsequent events bore that out. Now today the problem is is that the the housing market in general is going insane, whether it's housing prices or rents. Yeah, I mean it's like if you don't have a mortgage, you are at the mercy of a landlord who could raise your rent by five hundred percent. You know, it, it, with Precisely. a month's notice. Yeah, I mean millions of people are 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 housing insecure, which is a fancy way of saying they're facing homelessness. They're afraid of being thrown out in the streets because rents are rising explosively. I mean, here in New York City, the, the figures are amazing. And, uh, and no one knows, knows what to do. It. And people are barely holding on. They are devoting 60 to 70% of their take-home pay to their rent, which means that they have little left over for food uh, and less for clothing, uh, et cetera, and you know, much less you know the the odd bit of entertainment. Yeah. Uh, so it's really it's really tough, and I think this is what I think is this is what's really spooking consumers. Yeah. And and causing them to really really worry about what the future holds, and and I don't I don't blame them. It's really a it's really an amazing development. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's very. It's it just sort of like the. It, it's it's funny to be living at a time when you think a lot of the accepted wisdom just might not be true for pretty soon and for quite a while. And <laughs> you go, I well, don't know who I should really listen to now. Let me ask you one more thing about this this trial, uh, because I I don't I don't know how unnerved I should be that it is still really. Uh, focused on productivity, right? And, and making productivity, uh, retaining that as, as the utmost uh, of the utmost importance, right? And so it is it's based on what I am told is the 180-100 model, where it's 100% to pay for 80% of the time in exchange for a commitment to main 100% productivity. 100% to pay for 80% of the time, I'm onto it. Uh, this productivity thing, though, you know, it says researchers are going to work with all of the participating organizations to measure the impact on productivity in the businesses and also the well-being of workers, the impact on the environment, the impact on gender equality. So, you know, I mean, I, I wonder if I just wonder how how much fealty should we uh, have toward this idea of whatever 100% productivity means. I, I am glad to see that other criteria are going to get a look in this analysis. But do we have to do we have to sort of reassess our our relationship to this idea of productivity anyway? Well, yeah, the official the, the 180 100 formula to me sounds like a like a um, an updated version of the old the old term speed up. I mean, where you work, you know, where you wind up working a uh, uh, 25% uh, higher to make up for the lost time. Yeah. 25% harder and faster to make up for the, lo- the lost time. Um, uh, I, I mean, you know, I mean, it's an interesting experiment. And I think that, that the way, what they may find uh, by, you know, by moving to a, a four day work week is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of downtime will, will be eliminated. Uh, and, you know, and so people will work more intensively during that, that limited time. And, um, and, uh, some of the, some of the lost productivity maybe, maybe made up, but it's, it's very, it's very, it's unclear. A lot of things are unclear. I don't know how this works on an, on an assembly line or in, in physical labor where you've got to 
turn out so many widgets, produce so many cars per you know per per day. I mean, really, how you can affect that without making fundamental technical technological changes. Right. And, that, and those may be possible at some point. It's, that's not, it's not really quite clear. In office work, uh, it may be a bit easier because office work is often, you know, sort of more poorly defined or not, it's not really clear what's work and, you know, how much time people spend working and how much time they spend, you know, gabbing around the, uh, the office, uh, water cooler. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so that's not clear, but, you know, but, but also, you know, bear in mind, you know, that, 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 Productivity is really, really hard to measure, mm-hmm. and um, and 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 a lot of seeming downtime is not really downtime at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you you know when you when you you're 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 talking with your the guy at the next next desk, you maybe you maybe you know shooting the breeze over what you did this past weekend, but you also maybe maybe exchanging ideas about your work. Yeah. And there may actually be tangible benefits that result. Yeah. Um, so so and and if you try to comp- if you try to speed stuff up, then um, then I think some of those benefits may be lost. So it, it, it's a very interesting interesting experiment. I'm I'm I'd be very interested in seeing you know seeing how it turns out, what they come up with, what the actual economic effects are. Uh, it's it, it really is quite interesting, but I am. I'm skeptical as to any kind of long-term changes because I think we're entering into a period of economic turbulence. And um, uh, some of the benefits of this 80, of this 180, 100 plan will take a long time to work out before we're really sure how, how real they are. Yeah, yeah. And certainly in the U.S., it feels like we are entering into a period of uh, labor discipline, right? Especially with Powell saying, no, we got to get wages down. Yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, about Powell's statement, I mean, one thing that's really incredible, I mean, it's for the last 20, last 30 years, really, or actually more like 40 years, we mm-hmm. have seen wage stagnation. Yeah. And then, and then we have seen dramatic increases. By the top five, the top one, and the top zero point one percent, and the um, and the and the and the Fed's policy since two thousand eight, which were to open up the credit floodgates and keep interest rates at at you know real interest rates at actually at, at sub zero levels, I mean, had the effect of just like you know creating an absolute orgy on on Wall Street and fueling the the, the top point one percent all the more. So now, however, somehow the blame lies with the with the ordinary people, you know, in the in the middle 20 percent or below. Somehow they're responsible for inflation. We've got too much Uh, to spend. Yeah, precisely. It does. It does not add up at all. It's actually outrageous. Yeah. Uh, And um, and and clearly the, the, the inflationary pressures come from the 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 uh, the 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 flood of uh, of easy credit that the Fed unleashed on Wall Street, which led to a to a to an explosion in financial assets, uh, an explosion in real estate, which has been which is what why the housing market is going insane, and now is leading to an explosion in ordinary in the price of ordinary commodities. Yeah. 
And it's just like a game of musical chairs, right? I mean, I was in my head thinking of it as a, a casino, but it's more like it's like musical chairs and you can't ever stop the music because then you'll discover how much of it is just fake, right? How many of these organizations oh, yeah, totally. could not tolerate, uh, you know, could not tolerate a, a margin call or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's, really, it's, like, it's only when the tide goes out do you see those slithering, those slithering, disgusting creatures in the mud, you know. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and when, the, and when the tide goes out here, I mean, we'll we'll see all all the scams, all the the hair-brained, you know, Silicon Valley deals. Those are all already becoming apparent, but more will become apparent, and more people will wind up embarrassed, and there will be more. There'll be a greater and greater shakeout and more of these really flaky, you know, high tech ventures yeah. will uh, will be exposed. Yeah. Uh, this is a topic that I really love, but we have other stuff to get into. <laughs> no, this is also just I think, again, with the, I think also uh, people are really not uh, very not they don't understand actually how close i think some of our sort of traditional financial institutions are to the juicero level of scam you know and that i think that the line between those two has gotten has gotten a lot finer and that that is the real danger that is getting overlooked but we're going to have to go into that in more detail another time i i wanted to make sure we talk about UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the vote that he is facing now. It has apparently just started. This has been a long time coming. There were whispers of a no confidence vote uh, in the days before Russia's invasion of Ukraine over, of course, uh, Partygate and just what Johnson's government was doing while people in Britain were, you know, not able to attend the funerals of their loved ones, etc. Then this invasion really let Bojo play wartime prime minister for a while and, and put all that to bed for a couple of months. But now it's back. Uh, the trigger for the no confidence vote uh, was was pulled. The trigger is letters from at least 54 Tory lawmakers asking for it. But of course, as I was reminded by coverage this morning, there are 359 conservatives in Parliament. So letters from a few dozen do not necessarily uh, signal his immediate end. Um, Need 180 yes. to remove him. And and so even though I think the 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 prevailing view right now is that Johnson probably will not lose this one outright, even a victory would be hard for him to recover from. Uh, he was booed over the weekend by some onlookers during the Queen's Jubilee celebrations. And the AP says the vote is a sign of deep conservative divisions less than three years after Johnson won a huge victory, a, a, the biggest victory in decades for conservatives in the UK. And so I wonder... I'm curious what you think his chances are, Dan, and if you agree that either way, this is this is a nail in Boris Johnson's coffin. And then I also want to ask what these divisions are, right? Is it is it teetotalers versus booze hounds or is there some uh, ideological rift here that we are witnessing a result of? Well, first of all, I, I, th I think I think that Johnson will survive. Um, and uh, and he and because he has no he has no real rivals in the uh, in the Tory party to speak of, um, uh, he, he he neatly zapped uh, Rishi uh, Sunak, is the uh, the uh, the ex the chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, a few weeks ago when when sources who are undoubtedly Tory party sources mm. revealed to the press that uh, that Rishi Sunak's uh, you know ultra rich wife was benefiting from a, a, a tax dodge. 
that was that was extraordinarily embarrassing because Sunak is the uh, is the treasurer essentially, and uh, and you know and uh, and and left him just like gasping for breath, essentially dashed his <laughs> hopes of, re, of replacing uh, replacing Boris Johnson, and the other likely candidate is uh, is Liz Truss, the foreign the foreign secretary, and and she is just a a complete flake. Uh, who I think yeah. is just really an embarrassment, and I, I and I can't and, and as and as crazy and nutty as Boris Johnson is is and and he is really crazy and nutty. Uh, I I can't see Liz Truss uh, gaining. No, Liz Truss has been pretty embarrassing just across the board, hasn't she? Totally, yeah. and she and she gave a and she gave a warmongering speech about about three or four weeks ago, and that was extraordinary, completely over the top. You know, and just like you know, wanted not only wanted to drive Russia out of out of the Crimea at the and the Donbass, but you know, but to, but right, to out of, trample uh, trample over over the you know over the Russia's prostrate uh, body, use that to tame uh, uh, China, turn the the Group of Seven into a new NATO. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It was like something out of uh, out of Austin Powers, you know, where Doctor Evil has a new plan to conquer the world, and uh, and uh, it was just ridiculous. So I so I think Johnson will ha- will hang on, and I think the late labor is uh, is um, incredibly weak at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the the purge of the the purge of a um, of Zionists, of uh, the pur- the purge of so called anti Semites, yeah, uh, um, uh, has done the party more harm than good. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 purge was totally phony. Uh, I think that um, that uh, that Keir Starmer just used it to to drive out. Uh, Leftists from the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Most of the victims were themselves Jewish. Actually, it's pretty funny. People mm-hmm. don't realize that. And 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 Keir Starmer is left standing for nothing. Yeah, I mean, he really is kind of a a, a British, you know, a uh, Joe Biden uh, left you know, standing uh, to yeah. encourage Labour to do their patriotic duty and celebrate the Queen's Jubilee. That's yeah, the last I exactly saw. Exactly right. Him. Yeah. So no, so 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 why go with a pale imitation of Joe Biden, yeah. which is really pale? Uh, and 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 Johnson, you know, Johnson is a is a, a strong leader who, for the moment, I think is going to be able to 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 hold on. I mean, you know, his behavior is pretty outrageous. All those parties were really insane. Um, but nonetheless, I think that he'll be, for lack of an alternative, he'll be able to hold on. Yeah, it's interesting that, they, you know, that you have these deep divisions. But as you say, nobody on the other side coming forward, who's going to be who's going to be your guy? So, yeah, maybe he does. Maybe he does improbably again uh, squeak through this. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Dan, is actually probably the, the the biggest and most complicated topic here. And it is about what happened to journalist Danny Haifong over the weekend. Uh, it has to do with China. Whatever happened in Tiananmen Square and in Beijing in 1989 and uh, how much we should care about what the truth is of, you know, that event decades ago now. Uh, Danny was saying that June 4th is the anniversary of the crackdown on a month long protest movement in Beijing. 
And the general impression that you get in the United States was that student protesters in Tiananmen Square were were brutally repressed on the morning of June 4th in what remains, uh, you know, in common parlance termed a massacre. That was the word used by not not all, but some foreign media reports at the time. It remains tagged to the date, although what actually happened seems to be a lot more complicated. And I was surprised to go to Wikipedia this morning and the entry on what actually happened in Tiananmen Square is very interesting. It notes that Communist Party officials have long asserted no one died in the square on June 4th, that one of the student leaders who said he saw hundreds of students murdered by gunfire was not present at the square at that morning, uh, that many other students said they didn't see the events that others uh, described, like tanks running over sleeping students, and that cables... From the U.S. Embassy in Beijing in 2011, agreed there was no bloodshed in the square. Uh, Other diplomats told U.S. staff there that he mostly saw troops in anti-riot gear and didn't observe any mass firing of weapons. And I say this just because Wikipedia is not generally known for, you know, uh, bucking the the most comfortable narrative for the United States, you know. And so I thought it was interesting that it provides this kind of information on what happened, uh, especially because journalist Danny Haifong was locked out of his Twitter account for a thread uh, beginning with this tweet. He said... Every June 4th, Western propagandists remind us of the Tiananmen Square massacre to smear China. The truth, no massacre occurred on the square, and the violence that took place in Beijing during that time was part of a failed color revolution backed by the U.S. So that was deemed by Twitter to violate its... um, uh, its uh, guidelines against harassment and abuse that you can't engage in targeted harassment of someone or engage other people to to do so. And now, of course, Danny Haifong deleted that tweet. The rest of the thread remains. So he was allowed to, on Twitter, create a thread of, um, you know, multiple contemporaneous sources that challenge this sort of idea in the U.S. about what happened. And so I just wonder how concerned do you think we should be that saying no massacre occurred in the square and violence elsewhere was a product of a failed color revolution is termed harassment and abuse on Twitter and has to be deleted. I think we should, we should be very concerned, very concerned. I mean, first of all, there, there are two issues here. Number one, I mean, I think that, that, that this kind of censorship is completely outrageous. I mean, I, I mean Danny Haifong's statement falls within whatever, what I would regard as clearly the reasonable bounds of political Political debate. He's allowed to voice an opinion about the about the that Tiananmen Square, whether you agree with it or not. Uh, it's uh, you know it's 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 not you know it's it's accurate in certain respects, inaccurate in other respects. But you know it's 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 it really is fair. It's a, it's a fair comment, and the idea that it's being censored is just completely outrageous. Completely, that they really have no right to go there. They 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 have no knowledge. They don't. They they lack sufficient knowledge as to what happened in 1989 in Tiananmen Square to go there. So it's completely outrageous, and and these things have multiplier effects because if we can't talk frankly and honestly about what happened in Tiananmen Square, then we can't talk frankly and honestly, honestly about a whole range of political issues. Yeah. You know, all kinds of opinions then become, you know, dangerous and suspect. And mm-hmm. that's really bad. Yes. 
And this is the question I, you know, if you can't talk frankly about it and honestly, like what what should we be saying if we are talking frankly and honestly about it? I do think there is a tendency to go, look, there wasn't blood. Maybe three people died. I've seen uh, I think Tiananmen mothers have documented three people who, who died in Tiananmen Square. Uh, you know, is there a little bit of sleight of hand going on here if you say actually this massacre in Tiananmen never occurred? But of course, there was quite a lot of violence around Beijing. Right. And you have uh, death tolls ranging from the government's toll of 300 protesters and soldiers combined to the figure of 10,000 civilian deaths that was put forward by a British diplomat a few years ago and then pretty quickly walked back. I think the accepted range is from 300 to something like 3,000. And so, you know, uh, Tiananmen was a a really powerful propaganda tool for the West, I think, for quite a long time. Uh, It has faded a little bit now. And I wonder, you know, how important should it be to Americans to understand that given how powerful a propaganda tool it was? Or should we just go, well, impossible to know because both sides are too invested in presenting their own image of it. So uh, let's let's just move on. Let's just accept it. Who knows what actually happened and stop asking or, you know, or, or is there a way to know? And is it how much does it matter? No, it matters a great deal. Yes. Yeah, Tiananmen Square was a very important event and, and an absolutely crucial event for understanding, you know, what's going on in China today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and, the, and the proper response to to Danny Haifang's tweet was to take issue with with his assertions. You know, and if you know if you think he's wrong, then you then you join the debate and you point up you know you know you know other facts and you know and the, there's a back and a forth and I and I'm and I'm quite confident that eventually you know eventually out of this process the truth will emerge, but you know, cutting it short and penalizing Hai Fong is is crazy. It just makes no sense. Yeah. And about Tiananmen Squares itself, there were really were kind of two uprisings. There was a student uprising in the in, in the square itself. And that uprising that they had a they had a, a paper mache imitation statue of the of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, so you know so some people saw it as a kind of a pro-American uh, color revolution of the sort that would become famous in Georgia or the Ukraine. Um, but also the students sang the international. And, and that's very important as well. That's 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 the the famous socialist anthem. So that's very important. Number one, number two, the second uprising, you know, took place on the you know on the periphery of the square, of the square, and elsewhere in the city where there apparently were was that were major worker protests um, over over inflation. Uh, Commodity shortages, the general authoritarianism of the communist regime, etc., and, and those were of a very different character. And uh, and 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 interestingly and tragically, of course, um, those those protests were put down with far more bloodshed than the the relatively middle class protests in the square itself. So it goes to show. Where the you know what the regime really feared, it, it, it believed it could it could co-opt these students pretty easily, and in fact, it it subsequently did. But it was more worried about strikes and worker protests 
which is why it came down you know, with a really with a mailed fist. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and so I, I think I think Hai, hai Fong is really derelict and, and, and not pointing that out. And I think his, you know, I think his his general support for the for the Chinese government is really I mean, I disagree with it quite profoundly. Um, but uh, and I think I think most most socialists would. But but nonetheless, I mean, I mean, Twitter has no right to step in and terminate this, you know, this debate. It's ridiculous. You know, and, and what's interesting to me is that is that, you know, is that since, you know, since early in the post-war period, the town square has disappeared. So the traditional zone of public debate has disappeared. And by the 70s, it was moving into sh- into private shopping malls, and actually there was some interesting uh, Supreme Court ruling, which you know about, about the right to pass out political leaflets in a privately owned shopping mall, and the, super, the Supreme Court actually defended that, upheld that right, you know. But but now that that so much debate has moved into social media, which of course is privately owned, then you know social debate is now at the mercy of private censors, in a way it never has been before. So so we hand the, the the censorship power to Twitter, Facebook, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 and it's going like it's going mad. It's, you know, it's proceeding very aggressively. And as a result, the the consequences for political debate in the U.S. are really severe. Yeah. And I think I think it's this high fong incident is really is 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 really worrisome. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that it really is. And it's a it is a shame. And also you push so many things into the dark that <laughs> that are true or that are worth discussing. I want to ask quite agree. I want to ask just uh, without taking up too much time about the the danger of perhaps overusing the the color revolution idea, right? I mean, I am very open to the idea of U.S. meddling in in many circumstances, but I also wonder if we are in danger of erasing the agency of other populations if we are too eager to see un- Uncle Sam and the Open Societies Foundation, you know, and the National Endowment for Democracy and whoever else behind every movement movement that happens to dovetail with Western policy. Uh, I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Every every some of these governments are really bad, yeah. and every protest, you know, in 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 that part of the world is not necessarily the uh, the uh, the workings of the CIA or the National Endowment for Democracy. And that if you if you adopt that position, then you wind up supporting you know every every lousy third world government there is, mm-hmm. and that's not a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. That was the great author and journalist Dan Lazar. Dan, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. 
James Mitchell, one of the CIA contract psychologists who was a co-creator of the agency's torture program, testified at a hearing at Guantanamo last month that was just made public that former CIA director Gina Haspel personally sat in on sessions where al-Qaeda suspect Abdurrahim Eshidi was waterboarded. At the time, Haspel was the CIA's Guantanamo chief of base. Now, we didn't even learn that until about two years ago. In her Senate confirmation hearings as CIA director, Haspel refused to answer questions about her time at Guantanamo, saying that it was part of her, her classified career. And even in the most recent hearing, she was only identified as Officer Z9A. They never used her name. She had also headed a secret prison where Nashidi and others were tortured in 2002, but has never answered any questions about her role or activities at that location either. And the CIA still considers them to be classified. And in other news, President Biden will soon make a trip to Saudi Arabia in an effort to rebuild ties damaged when Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered and had carried out the brutal assassination of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi was lured into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, where he was murdered, dismembered and disposed of. His body has not been found. Still, the Washington Post said today that even if Biden goes to Saudi Arabia, relations are unlikely to improve appreciably and the price of gas will not drop. We're joined by former CIA officer Ray McGovern. Ray was a morning intelligence briefer for President George H.W. Bush and later became the co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and is a renowned peace activist. You can find more of his work at raymcgovern.com. Welcome back, Ray. Thanks, John. I don't know how renowned I am, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I wrote the script and I say you're renowned and I'm very pleased to have you on the show. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Ray. Let, let's start with these revelations from James Mitchell, one of the CIA torturers that Gina Haspel was present for the torture of Abdurrahim Eshidi. Um, Haspel Ray was, was chief of the CIA's base at Guantanamo at the time. And I want to put I want to provide a little bit of background there. Uh, this, the Washington Post reported. Oh, I'm going to say it was three years ago that she was the chief of base. Uh, I wrote something for uh, Consortium uh-huh. News well, parroting back the fact that the Washington Post had said that she was chief chief of base and ProPublica so then quoted me. Saying she was chief of base. Then they recalled the ProPublica piece saying, Oh, we relied on John Kiriakou and he didn't know what he was talking about. She wasn't the chief of base at Guantanamo, she was the chief of base at the secret prison. Well, now we know three years later she was actually the chief of base at both of these places. Why would somebody so senior, and she was frankly too senior to be the chief of base of these two places, but she was. Why would somebody so senior need to be present in a torture session? Well, John, I would say two reasons. Purient uh, interest. Exactly. And the, uh, and the and notion that this was a first. About. In other words, a doctors, Mitchell and Jessen, well, it's described in the New York Times, for God's sake. Uh, Dr. Mitchell held the cloth while Dr. Justin right. poured the water. Right. And was Gina Haspel there? She was. She watched the whole thing. Now, this was an experiment. This is, as far as I know, this is the first time they tried this new 
<laughs> it's not really new. We're new for the CIA, as far as, I'm, as far as I know, technique, okay? And so she was there watching, and uh, that, I think, explains not only the Turian interest, but the fact that she wanted to see how it goes. Now, she did see how it went, and you know the rest of the story, right. but... Anyone, John, uh, she destroyed the videotapes that recorded all these sessions. Yes, she did. Destroyed them, even though there was a court order to preserve that evidence. Now, did she end up in jail? No, I think, didn't they make her the head of the CIA, John? I I think they did make her the head of the CIA. And then I was surprised to read in this New York Times article, uh, Ray, that she's now um, at, uh, what's it called, King and Spaulding? Uh, the the big international law firm here a block away from us at 17th and Pennsylvania Avenue. And much to my surprise, she does not appear on the list of employees on the website, which goes on for dozens of pages uh, with with photographs, with flags behind them and these wonderful bios. And she doesn't appear anywhere on that website. So I want to ask you also, Ray, you know, Haspel was the head of one of the secret prisons that's been reported on extensively in the press. That's We're not now, allowed to say the um, location, although the media have uh, speculated correctly about its location. She refused to talk about these assignments in her Senate confirmation hearings. Uh, Diane Feinstein had asked her specifically whether or not she had headed uh, this secret prison doesn't. site. She refused to answer the question, and then nobody seemed to care. There was never any follow up. And and Haspel in the in the hearings didn't even give the normal answer where you're supposed to say, I'm happy to answer that question in full in a classified session. She never said that. She just didn't answer the question. What does that say to you, Ray, about about the oversight of the CIA on Capitol Hill? <laughs> oh, John is. As you know better than I, uh, oversight has turned into the concept of overlook. <laughs> these are these are the overlook committees. <laughs> they are they overlook everything. Now I was, you may recall, I was there. I mean, I take myself to these committees, yes. and uh, I couldn't believe. Now here's Diane Feinstein. She did something good in December of three years previous. Uh, what she did was force through the publication of a heavily sanitized study done by her committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, of which she was chair at the time, which indicted the CIA for lying through its teeth about the effectiveness of torture. There was no evidence that it produced any helpful intelligence information, and she got that out, okay? Now, that was uh, December of, let's see, uh, well, December 14, I think it was. So here's just a couple of years later, and it's May 9th, 2018, and she asked the normal question, as you say. She says, you know, well, you know, were you present? Or did you oversee any of these torture sessions with waterboarding and Haspel flicks her right off since we asked to classify? Yeah. She doesn't even say what you say is the normal response. So in answer to your question, that shows who's in charge here in Washington. It's certainly not the Senate. It's not even the president. It's the deep state. It's these arrogant people who ran, for example, Russiagate, and now 
uh, are running this Ukraine gate business to a fairly well, which could get us all killed. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I complain all the time that rather than the committees being truly oversight committees, they've become really little more than cheerleading committees. You know, once in a while, the CIA will anger um, a committee member or a committee chairman as John Brennan angered Dianne Feinstein. And we ended up with this heavily redacted executive summary of the Senate torture report. We still don't have any idea what the torture report says, and we likely never will. Um, I've mentioned on the air a couple of times, but I think it bears repeating, that I confronted um, Senator Ron Wyden once at a reception when I got home from prison. And I said, Senator, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I, I figured that you would um, offer up a little bit more support. And very angrily, he said to me, look, it takes all of my energy just to not lose my security clearance. And, you know, that that really spoke volumes that this is what they're afraid of, that they they accept the fact that they're not allowed to conduct oversight, that the CIA doesn't permit them to conduct oversight at the risk of losing their security clearances. That's what this really comes down to. And this is not a partisan issue. Haspel, Haspel continued to advance to the highest levels of the CIA under both Democratic and Republican presidents. How does that happen in your experience, Ray? How does somebody who, who is, clearly has an ideology continue to advance well into the senior intelligence service up to the point of being deputy director and then director of the CIA? It was no secret inside the CIA who Gina Haspel At was. Risk of losing we called her security. bloody Gina. We knew that she went to these torture sessions because of a prurient interest. She enjoyed them. She enjoyed watching people be tortured. How does that happen? John, uh, it pains me to say this, but it happens because of the leadership of the CIA as it's now constituted. Um, you know, you, well, you have uh, one former head of the CIA who later became Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, bragging at a, a meeting at the Texas A&M. He says, you know, we lied, <laughs> we cheated, we stole, we had entire training courses. It reminds you of the glory of the American experiment. It, end quote. What kind of stuff is that? He might have added, Oh, and we torture, and we have training courses in that, too. But that guy, Kiriakou, he wouldn't join us on, on that kind of thing. Can you imagine what kind of, what kind of a wuss is John Kiriakou? Yep. So, that's how bad it's gotten, and people are afraid. Let me give you one more example. Dick Durbin. Dick Durbin, big, big uh, Democratic yep. senator, used to be sort of liberal. Okay, so uh, before Iraq, he comes out of, uh, he's briefed on this weapons of mass destruction. He comes out of the meeting and the reporters say, well, are they there or, or are they not? He says, I can't tell you. It's classified. He knew damn well. Yep. That evidence was really, really sketchy. Yep. He couldn't tell anybody because he was afraid of losing his security clearance. Give me a break. He's supposed to represent us. He's supposed to monitor, oversee, not overlook the crimes of our intelligence. Jane Harmon. Jane Harmon was the chairwoman of the House Intelligence Committee. She came to our office 
for the briefing on the torture program. I was there, right? She was there in the conference room. And then when word leaked out that there's a torture program and a secret prison program and a rendition program, she said, I didn't know anything about this. You're the chairman of the committee. I didn't know anything about it. And then she said, well, I left I left that meeting early and the aide who stayed behind to take notes. He never told me what the rest of the meeting was about. Like, wow, that's clever. Quick recovery. That was pretty good. Ray, you've been associated with or you've reported on uh, the CIA for more than half a century. Is there any hope in your mind that the CIA will become a governmental agency that respects the rule of law? Or is the nature of the place such that it's always going to be an organization that does what it wants, when it wants, and is immune from the law? Is there any hope that you can see? Should there even be a CIA? John, the answer to your question that I've uh, come to is that people well, have to realize ever. first that there are two CIAs. There's the one that good. Truman Ray, set up you- to get unadulterated, he called it untainted information, untainted by departmental concerns like the Pentagon or the State Department, some, some agency that's responsive just to him, the President of the United States, where he could expect a straight answer on things. Mm-hmm. CIA, and that's the analytic division, okay? Now, by a quirk of history, operators got joined into this same agency way back in 1947. That has always been a structural fault. And the operators got all the money, got all the attention, uh, overthrew and throw the governments. And so so what you need to do is not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Take care of the analysts. Make sure that they can have a kind of structure where they're not responsive to people running the operations, okay? So they can tell the truth to the president. And then whatever you want to do with the operators, you'll put them under the Pentagon, make your own department of overthrowing governments, if you will, but get them the hell away away from the analysis so they don't taint it. You know, now it's never been worse since the analysts are folded in with the operators and are pretty much the targeteers, for example, uh, for drone operations, I understand it. I think you are exactly right. Ray, do you see us getting to a point where there could be justice for this torture program? Can you imagine a situation where we might ever see prosecutions or even successful civil litigation? 20 years have passed. I hate to say it, but the statute of limitations has expired um, on most of the torture program, but the at least these these civil uh, suits continue. Can you ever see any anything good coming of this? Well, I'm encouraged by what John Durham is doing now with respect to Russiagate. I am frankly surprised that he's been given enough leeway mm-hmm. to to expose what happened then. So uh, one must always be hopeful, uh, if not in court or in a legal way, there is the court of public opinion. Uh, There is the possibility of going around the block where you are now situated and uh, just going to this new firm and say, so where is Gina? We want to talk to Gina. Where where is she? And just kind of making sure that that we tell the American people that we're not going to acquiesce in this kind of thing. We're not going to acquiesce in the corruption of an agency that once did an awful lot of good and indeed, it once prevented a lot of really bad things from happening. And I, I can 
say that I played a role in some of that. Uh, and we're talking nuclear war. We're talking regional war. We're talking about the necessity of being able to give the president the right scoop, what really is happening, and not what uh, the Washington Post or the New York Times or, or the Pentagon or the State Department says is happening. That was the voice of Ray McGovern, former senior CIA officer. He was a morning intelligence briefer for President George H.W. Bush and later became the co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and a renowned peace activist. You can find more of his work at www.raymcgovern.com. You're listening to Political Misfits. Don't go away. We'll take a short break and come back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, bringing a few last headlines to you guys before we get out of here. And apologies, this one is going to be a sad one. Uh oh. Um, I do think it is interesting that after, for for some reason, you know, some event comes along and is the tipping point. Right. And yes. I, I think the Uvalde school shooting was, you know, appears to have been a, a really egregious example yes. of police um, disorganization at best, cowardice really yes. at, at worst. Um, and I, you know, tend to, I think they get enough benefit of the doubt. They don't need it from me. Uh, but the media has really been on uh, the police officers recently in a way I haven't seen um, with stories of police inaction making national oh, news. Yeah. And that is why I think yeah. we have this Washington Post story. Uh, Arizona man drowns as police yes. look on from just a couple hours ago. Right. So I went to look into this and it gets worse the more you read. I only right? I only saw the headline. I saw it in the New York Post that the cop was just standing there while this guy's calling for help. Yeah, it is really sad. And the first article was a very short one. Right. It just says a man drowned. He was calling police for help. You have an officer on radio saying, you know, I'm, I'm not jumping in there after you, whatever. Uh, and you think, OK, what are the circumstances under which this might be, you know, s- something you could consider? Is he is he in there? He's got a gun or something. Right. You know, this is some kind of situation where it was actually dangerous right. for the police officer. Oh, no. If you go to the detailed local account of it, uh, the man who drowned was a homeless man. Police had been called to where he was uh, because there were reports that he had gotten into a fight with somebody else. Uh, So when officers arrived, they spoke to Sean Bickings, who's the man who drowned, and his companion. They both cooperated fully. They denied that any argument had taken place. They were talking to the officers, uh, and then Bickings decided to climb over a fence and and go into the water. Officer said swimming's not allowed. He swam out 30 or 40 yards and then called for help a whole bunch of times. So these guys know. You know, you're standing there talking to him comfortably, right? You're yes. not behind it. You're not you're not behind a, a car door with your gun drawn. You know, there's no reason that, that this man is a danger to you. And you just stand there and watch him drown. I mean, crazy, the inhumanity. It's really. Yeah. And so, again, this is a, I think maybe before Ubalde, this would have been a local a local Arizona. Yeah. News story. Right. But now it's in The Washington Post. Does this lead to any change? 
who knows, right? Uh, who knows still? But it is interesting that I think these are getting national treatment that they weren't. I don't recall seeing uh, stories like not. this in, in big legacy media. No way. Did, did the article say anything about about the reaction within the police department? Is there going to be an investigation? Uh, they're on leave right now. Uh, it's the, three officers. So it's not just one guy. Three. Three, three officers are on leave. Uh, I guess because of an investigation, but you know, this always happens, right? You go yeah. on, go on leave, get a little paid time off. Wow. And then come on back because it actually, it turns out it wasn't your responsibility to, to help this guy. Sick. If you had been a nurse standing there, if you've been a medical professional standing there, I think you probably would, uh, you know, you would be considered to have an obligation. In some states, you remember the final episode of Seinfeld. It, it was, uh, they were all arrested in Massachusetts because they didn't come to the aid of a guy who was being mugged because some states have um, Good Samaritan laws yeah. where you have to help someone if you're in a position to help and they need help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jeez. Uh, but not if you're a police officer. No. And the Supreme Court's told us that. Yes, exactly. I mean, that is, this is kind of the problem. Again, if you want to be... <sighs> If you want to wow. tell us over and over, you're protecting and serving us. And that's the reason why we should, you know, give you leeway to do anything you want with the lethal power that we have imbued you with. Uh, then you better actually step up and do the protecting and serving. And that's not that's, that's not right. what I'm seeing. That's right. This is just a funny one. This is just because it involves uh, a character in my favorite mini political controversy of the last couple of years. Does the name Denver Riggleman mean anything to you, John? Yeah, uh, yeah. Why do I know that name? Perhaps because he was accused of um, uh, propagating uh, Bigfoot erotica. Oh, my striking? God. <laughs> I do remember <laughs> yes. that. So Denver Riggleman, he is a Virginia, a former for, yeah. Virginia state representative. Right. Right. Who was made right. famous because his opponent, uh, Marsha Coburn. Right. His opponent found... Uh, what I think was pretty clearly joking Bigfoot erotica that had been right. written for him as a by a friend as a joke or whatever, and decided that this would be a good way to try to smear him. Right. And look, I'm sure there are probably lots of other opinions Denver Riggleman has that you can go after him for. But just trying to be like, hey, this guy, this guy might think Bigfoot's sexy, and that's not the kind of man we want in Congress. Yeah, I think that backfired. Um, he I won, didn't he? I'm going to yeah, Google think, him right now. I think, I think he, he won. did. I think he did. And then I, I think he was a one-termer. Right. Um, yeah. That's why I think it, I think it did backfire because people yeah. were like, don't kink yeah, shame. He, he won. Don't kink shame the Bigfoot lovers out there. Let him write their fantasy erotica. Well, anyway, he's back in the news just because uh, he said he no longer considers himself to be a Republican. He was apparently interviewed by Jake Tapper and he said the the party has left me behind um, he was a technical advisor for the House uh, for the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Geez, I didn't realize that. You know, I, I remember he he was defeated by a guy who used to be a professor at Liberty University. And the issue that the guy used against him in the Republican primary was that Denver Riggleman had presided over the wedding of two gay staff members. Oh. You know, everybody enjoyed each other's company in the <laughs> office. Guy. And, and they said, would you preside, preside over our wedding? And he said, yes. And, and the conservatives jumped up and down. By the way, his book is called Bigfoot. 
It's complicated. I love it. I, I love, please, I am sure if I if I delved more deeply into Denver Riggleman and his political views, I would find a lot not to like. But everything I've heard so far makes him seem just like a lovable scamp. So, yeah, he, he said he has left the party. He will never run again as a Republican. The party left him behind, as he says. And, uh, you know, he's important enough, I guess, to talk to Jake Tapper about it. So... I thought that was pretty funny. Wow. That was one of my favorite headlines of the day. Wow, good for Denver Riggleman. Yeah, I had forgotten all about him. Exactly, and also uh, Diane Feinstein's in the uh, in the news again. The big uh, profile of her in New York Magazine over this <sighs> weekend, sort of talking about her as sort of a representation of American politics and exploring her sort of institutionalist way of governing and what it's like to be someone who has fought for things like reproductive rights, women's rights, uh, gay rights in an era when all of those things are being really, um, Mm -hmm. really actively repressed once more. Right. Not just abortion, but uh, with all of these bills. I think there was a bill in Florida that is going to deny transgender adults. What? Gender affirming care, which I need to look into a little bit more. But you do have people saying, yeah, this is never going to this was never going to be confined to uh, trans children. Right. This is yeah. this is an agenda that's, that's broader step. than that. Yep. That makes sense. We're going to have to look into that tomorrow and bring it to you then. That's all we've got time for here. I want to say, of course, thanks to all our guests and the producers and engineers who make this possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> 